You can have a seat. Good morning. We're going to brace for it. We're getting ready to turn the lights on. Here it comes. Um, Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. My name is Bobby, one of the pastors here. We're going to be in John chapter 17 this morning, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, John chapter 17. We've been working through Jesus's farewell to his disciples, his followers, his closest friends here over the summer months, and we're coming to the end of that. Um, As we've talked, Jesus has gathered his closest friends to him because he knows that the time, his time on earth is coming to an end. His hour has come. He knows what is in store for him. He knows what his father has planned for him. And he knows that just in a little while, the men that he had invested so much time in, the men that he knew and he loved, that he would be leaving them here on earth. And he gathers them to himself to say, I'm leaving. And as we've seen, all that he has said to them is coming from a place of love. At the beginning of John chapter 13, as John uh, uh, remembers this time, being one of those who is in that room with Jesus, hearing these words, as he looks back, he says that Jesus gathered those he loved, and he loved them to the end. And you can take that in two ways, that Jesus' love for these men never wavered never wavered up until and through his death, his resurrection, and him going back to heaven, and his love for them he expressed to the fullest extent by giving himself, by giving up his life for them. And when we talk about Jesus's love, we don't talk about it in some abstract or some spiritualized sense. Jesus loved these men in a real way, in a tangible way. It it was a love that came from his relationship with them, spending time with them, knowing them, and their experience of Jesus, their relationship with him was a glimpse, even though they didn't know it at the time, it was a glimpse into Jesus's relationship with his father. He was loving them with the same love that he and his father shared. And we're going to get a glimpse into that this morning in, in, in a very personal, in a very real way. So if you're there in John chapter 17, we're going to begin in verse 1. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may be glorified in you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. We'll stop right there. John says, when Jesus had spoken these words, and he's making the connection to the words that we looked at last week, where Jesus was saying, I'm leaving. I'm going back to my Father. I'm leaving you in the world. But Jesus assures his disciples that even though I am leaving, and even though you are staying in this world, that I have overcome this world. I have defeated death. I have defeated the enemy that wants to destroy you. And you can find hope in that. You can find trust in that. You can find assurance as you face whatever this world and whatever the enemy throws at you. Know that I have given you victory. John says when he had spoken these words... He lifted his eyes up to heaven and he prayed to his father. And if you read through the Gospels, the Gospel writers tell us over and over and over again, they tell us that Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed to his father. He, he spent time in prayer. But this is one of the rare occasions that we actually get to read and to hear what Jesus prayed for. The words that he used to his father, what he asked his father. And as we look over John 17 this week and into next week, we're going to see that Jesus prays to his father on behalf of himself. He prays to his father for his disciples. And he prays to his father on behalf of those who would believe because of the disciples. You and me sitting here today, thousands of years later, in a different culture that speak a different language, Jesus was thinking of us. He was thinking of those who would come after, those who would believe because of the words of his friends, the the ministry of his disciples. If you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they give this kind of historical, more historical account of Jesus's life. You will see that that they, they all draw out this prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden. After he and his disciples had left that room where they were eating that last meal together where Jesus washed their feet and he was talking with them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this prayer of agony, if you remember that, that Jesus in the garden, as he, as he looked forward, uh, not in a good way, but to the suffering, to uh, the betrayal, to uh, the momentary separation from his father on the cross, to his death, that Jesus was in agony, that he was in pain, that he was in grief, that, it, that the strength was draining from his body, that he, he, he sweat drops of blood. His agony was so intense. And, and the prayer that we read here strikes a different tone. And we're going to see that. And so those prayers could have been connected. They could have been prayed at the same time. But also, it's not hard for us to believe that Jesus prayed a lot and prayed many times to his Father on his way to the cross. He says, the hour has come. 
Over and over again up to this point, Jesus has told his disciples what? The hour is coming. The hour has not yet come, and yet here we read Jesus prays and acknowledges to his Father, the time has come. The thing that I was preparing my disciples for, the the time and, and the circumstance that I knew was coming, it's here. The time is now. In Matthew 26, verses 39 and 42, we read those beautiful words of Jesus where he acknowledges that, and he says, Not my will, but your will be done. The hour has come. The time has come that his father had appointed. And in Jesus' mind, the father had appointed this time. And so he was going to submit to what God had purposed to do in this time. God had sent Jesus, the Father had sent the Son to accomplish his purposes in this hour, at this time, to bring himself glory. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. And and Tamise alluded to this earlier, but that word glory, to glorify, means to praise means to honor, means to acknowledge that someone is, is worthy of that praise, is worthy of that honor. And Jesus says, the hour has come. And he asks, Father, glorify me so that I can glorify you, so that I can give praise and honor to you. Glorify your son so that the son can glorify his father. And how is this going to happen? The father, Jesus says, has given the son authority over all people so that the son can give eternal life to all whom the father has given him. Let me put it another way. The purpose of the father glorifying the son is so that the Son can glorify the Father. And the purpose of the Father giving the Son authority over all people is so that the Son can give eternal life to all those that the Father has given him. And when Jesus talks about authority here, and when he, when he uses that word, he's not talking about the general authority that he has f- because he is the Son of God. He is talking about an authority that comes from what the Father had done in the past, before time began. Because Jesus tells us here that the Father has already given him those whom he will give eternal life. And I confess to you this morning, I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that works. I don't know how God does what he does outside of our understanding of time and space before the world was created. But Jesus says that God has already, that his Father has already given to him those whom he will give eternal life. And he did that because of the glory that Jesus is asking for. Father, glorify your son. That glory will come from Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. 
And Jesus looks forward to that and says, God, glorify your son. Glorify your son. Know that I am going to the cross. I am submitting to your will. I know I'm going to die, and I know that you will raise me back to life. And I want to experience the glory, the honor, the praise that I had with you before the world began, but that I know is going to happen because I am going to die. I am going to be raised to life, and you are going to accomplish your purposes in and through me. When we look at this, we see Jesus laying out such a beautiful picture. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, John writes this, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. This is the authority that Jesus is talking about, that God, his Father, has given him authority to give eternal life to all of us who would believe. That is God's purposes. Purpose. That is God's plan. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We've gone back and forth in this passage a lot of Sundays. And the reason that we've done that is because it's such a beautiful picture of what Jesus is talking about here. Paul says, starting in verse 5, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And having been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now get this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your son may glorify you. This is what Jesus was talking about. Because Jesus was looking ahead and knowing that his, hum, that his humbleness, even to death on a cross, would lead to him being exalted by his Father. And that because of his work on the cross, that men and women, boys and girls, generation after generation, would praise Jesus because of his saving work in giving them eternal life. That is the glory of Jesus. That is the glory of God the Father, that when we see this, that before the world was created, God had a plan. God had a plan to redeem people from this world for ages and ages to come to bring them to himself. Praise God for that. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Glorify me 
so that I may glorify you. Because Jesus and the Father are one. When the Father's purposes are accomplished through Jesus, Jesus is glorified by the Father. The Father is glorified by Jesus. And so this morning, as we sing these songs, that song that we just sang before I got up here, praise the one, the risen Son of God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That on this morning, we are giving glory to God because of what Jesus did. We are praising God. We are giving honor to God because of his plan to give eternal life to you and to me. That's why we exist. But Jesus goes on to say, well, what is eternal life? What is eternal life? To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know, when we talk about eternal life with each other, with people who aren't Christians, a lot of times we talk about it in terms of being uh, saved from eternal separation from God. We talk about eternal life being the experience of wholeness and and transformation in this life. And those are all parts of eternal life. But Jesus isn't being reductionistic here. The essence of eternal life is knowing God. It's knowing God. Eternal life is being in a relationship with God. And those words that John has used over and over again, words like fellowship and faith and trust, being in that relationship, being connected to the only true God. Jesus taught his disciples what eternal life was, not just a length or a duration of life, but a life with God, under God's rule, under God's reign. Jesus showed them who God was. Remember, they said, well, if you're going to away, can you just show us the Father? And he says, I already have. I've shown you the Father because you know me. You know what God is like. You know what God desires and what matters to God. You know what God wants for your life and desires for you because you know me. Jesus' death and his resurrection makes it possible for us to know God in the deepest sense. To know God, the one, the true God, through Jesus Christ. And, you know, that is our invitation to the world. That is our invitation to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our family, to our friends. It's not an invitation to a better life. It's not an invitation to a a greater sense of meaning. It's not uh, an invitation to just where we go after we die. We listen to people's objections and and we don't push them away. We we welcome their questions about uh, what the Bible says and whether it's relevant and valid and, 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 and connects to present day life. We hear out their anger and their frustration about the church. There's always a time, there's always a place where we engage with people, but at the end of the day, when we're getting down to brass tacks, our, our invitation to those who don't know God is to know God. To know God. To know God through Jesus Christ. And when we look at our church, 
the reason that we gather here on Sunday morning, the reason that we, we have our missional community group, the reason that we have our discipleship group, the we, reason that we engage with our community and serve and show hospitality to our neighbor, the reason that you in your life have relationships with people, that you, the reason that you work the job that you work, where you work it with the people with whom you work at the, your family, all of these things, all of these things, God is working together. The purpose of those is for all of us, those here this morning, those out in the community that don't know him. The whole purpose is for us to know God, to know God, to have a relationship of fellowship, of faith, of trust with the one true God. Soma Northwest exists so that people in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in our schools will know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That is why we're here. That is why we exist. Let's keep reading. John 17. Let's pick back up in verse 9. Jesus to his father, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. He's talking about Judas, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. There's a lot there. Let's just start working through it. Jesus begins by saying, I am praying for them, his disciples, not for the world. Jesus makes a clear contrast here because of his love, the intimacy he shared with these men, his faith, the promises, the joy that he desired for his disciples. All of these things don't negate God's love for the world. But Jesus says that there is a special relationship that he has with those who are his. There is a special relationship that you and I have with God if we are followers of Jesus. That we can know God in a, in a, in a sense of intimacy, a closeness of relationship. There is a love, there is a joy, there, there, is, there are promises that we are beneficiaries of because we are God's. And Jesus prays, 
because of this love, I'm asking specific things for these, Father. He prays for his disciples because he loves them. And the first thing he prays for them is that his Father would keep them in his name. What does that mean? That God would keep these men in his name. Jesus came in the name of his Father. Jesus came to show what God was like. To preach and to teach and to show the truth about who God was. What matters to God. What God was like. What God desires for men and women. Jesus came saying, you want to see the Father? You know me. That is what God is like. This is what God is like. And Jesus' prayer is that God, his Father, would keep his disciples faithful, holding on to what he had given them, the truth about God himself. That they would not waver. That they would not drift away. That they would not depart from the truth that he had come preaching and teaching and living about who God was. And what does he say? is the purpose. Why God does he want them to, why does he want God to keep them in his name? So that they would be one as he and his father are one. That they would be unified. And we're going to talk more about this next week. But the basis for their oneness, the basis of their unity was not a shared culture It was not a shared language. It was not even a shared mission. The basis for their unity, for his disciples being one, was the truth about God. That there is one God and that God is one. And that's why what we believe about God matters. That's why what we believe and what we say about God really matters and is essential to who we are as a people. Listen, we can do a lot of good things with other people who don't believe about the same things that we believe about God. We can do good things for this community and this city. We can help people. We can rescue people. We can meet people's needs. We can do a lot of good things, but we will never be truly unified with those who do not believe the same thing about God, that there is one God, and we know that one God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's why what we believe about God really matters. And what does Jesus say is, is, is the result of this kind of unity? That they may be one as the Father and the Son are one, so that their joy may be fulfilled. Jesus' primary interest in asking the Father to keep his disciples connected to the truth about who God is, so that they wouldn't waver, so that they wouldn't drift away, so that they would be one. His concern isn't that he would keep up the statistics of the church, that he wouldn't have, uh, uh, that he wouldn't lose people and, and the numbers would go down. His purpose and his desire for them to be one is so they may experience his joy. That they may share in joy. That when hard times come, that they would experience joy. When their faith was tested, that they would experience joy. As we're going to see in a second, when the world 
persecutes them, when the enemy comes after them, that they would be one so that they could share in the joy of who God is and experience that joy as they live their lives together. That they would be one as God and the Father and God the Son are one and share in joy. Keep them in your name. The second thing Jesus prays is that his Father would keep them from the evil one. Who they are and the life that they had committed to following Jesus was in direct opposition to the world. And that's true of us here this morning. Who we are and the life that we have chosen to live, a life with God under the rule of God, is by its very nature in direct opposition to the world. The world hated Jesus, and Jesus says the world will hate them. Jesus' enemy is our enemy. The one who wanted to destroy Jesus wants to destroy you and me. The world and what we experience, we talked about this last week, the world and what we tangibly experience is a result of the enemy of God waging war on everything that God has said is good. The devil has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Not in some abstract spiritual sense, but in a very real, tangible, experiential sense. And you and I face that every single day. We face that passively by just walking out into the world waking up in the morning and having to just deal with the effects of sin, with the effects of death, with, with the oppression of darkness. And we face that directly in our own lives as we experience the pull into destruction, the pull into believing our own truth, the pull into the temptation to just live like we want to live and, and, and not think of the consequences. Jesus says the world hates Hates them because the world hated him. Hatred is real. We feel it and we experience it. But we, we default in two directions. We default in two directions when we experience it. On one hand, we can withdraw. And we can say, because the world is evil, because the world hates us, because the world is pulling us away from the things of God and in direct opposition to who Jesus is, we withdraw. And we don't participate. And we seclude ourselves and we try to protect ourselves from everything that could go wrong and from every amount of persecution, from every pull and, and temptation that this world has. And we isolate us and we, we, we seclude ourselves. And then on the other hand, we can just dive right in, can't we? And we can blend in. And we could just live our lives like everybody else is living their lives. And we can adopt the values. We can adopt the perspectives. We can have the attitudes that the world has. We can see ourselves as no different. Jesus says, don't default to withdrawal. Don't default to blending in. What does he pray? What does he pray? 
don't take them out of the world. Don't take them out of the world. But keep them from the evil one. Don't take them out of the world. Don't seclude them. Don't isolate them. But keep them from becoming like the world. Keep them from adopting a posture that is in direct opposition, whether we know it or not, whether we intend it or not. Direct opposition to what God says is life. Life with God under the rule of God. And Jesus prays that his Father would hold us in that tension. That he would hold us in that tension. And that as we are being held, being in the world, but not being of the world, that we know that God will protect us. And how we do that, listen, we can get in all kind of conversations about where we send our kids to school and what neighborhoods we live in and what TV shows we watch and don't watch and all of those things. The how, that's between you and God. That's between you and God. The how is not addressed here, but the truth that Jesus prays for is that we would know that God protects us so our decisions on where to engage in the world and where to stand and withdraw from the world, where to say yes and where to say no, the one thing that can't be true is that those decisions cannot be made in fear. That we do not make those decisions in fear because we know that whether we, when we choose to say yes or whether we choose to say no, that God will protect us. Amen. That God will protect us. And so what does that do? That frees us up. That frees us up to truly live. That frees us up to truly be the people that God wants us to be. That we're not controlled by fear. That we're not plagued by anxiety. That we don't see a boogeyman around every corner. And we don't just say, listen, I'm just going to dive in and I don't care what the consequences are. We know that whether we say yes, whether we say no, whether we engage, whether we stand apart, that God is with us and that God will keep us and protect us from the evil one. And that's hope. That's freedom. And that's the assurance that Jesus prays for here. Keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one. And then the last thing Jesus prays, sanctify them in truth. That word sanctify comes from the word holy, which just simply means different. Different or other. When we say that God is holy, we are just basically saying that God is different from every other thing that we understand. That God is different from you and from me. When the angels, the thing that the angels say over and over and over again, holy, 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 they are just affirming the fact that God is God. That God is different. And when Jesus says sanctify them. He's saying, God, set them apart. Make them different because you are different. When you read through the Old Testament, you will see a lot of this language when it comes to the worship that the people of God, the Israelites, when they worshiped in the tabernacle, when they worshiped in the temple, and, and, and God said that there were certain things in the temple, in the tabernacle, that were supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to be reserved for worship, reserved for the acknowledgement of who God was. He talks about the priests 
those who ministered in the temple and in the tabernacle, that they were supposed to be set apart by God, that they were different. And all of these things were symbols. It was a symbolic thing to help God's people remind themselves over and over and over again that God is God and that we are not. That God is different from us. That God is holy. And by setting apart objects, setting apart certain people who ministered and, and, and helped God's people worship, they were seeing visible rec- representations of God's holiness and God's difference. And so when Jesus prayed for his disciples to be set apart, to be sanctified by God, he's saying, God, because you are different, because you are holy, I pray that you would set these friends of mine, these ones whom I love, that you would set them apart for your purposes so that the world will know you are different. Look at what Jesus says here at the end of that passage in 17, uh, excuse me, in 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they may also be sanctified in truth. Jesus prays that God would set them apart as he has sent Jesus into the world to accomplish the purposes of God. Jesus says, I set myself apart. I'm sanctifying myself. I'm consecrating myself. I'm saying right now, I have the choice whether or not to submit to my Father's will, knowing that it means death, knowing that it means um, uh, pain and grief and sorrow and suffering. I'm choosing to say, yes, I will be set apart. I will obey my Father's will. And as I am doing that, I pray that for these men as well, that they would be set apart, that they would be sanctified, that they would be set apart by God for God's purpose to accomplish his will. And the only way that we are able to accomplish the purposes of God is to be sanctified by truth. The truth of who God is. What matters to God. What God desires of us. If we are not aligned with those things, we will never be able to be sent into the world to accomplish what God has, has desired for us to accomplish. What Jesus is doing in this passage, in all of these things, is he's telling us what matters for his people, the people that he loves, the people that he has a special relationship in. Everything else hinges on one thing, that they know God. They know who God is. And that's why here at Soma Northwest, we spend so much time talking about the person of God. We spend so much time talking about the Trinity and the truths of God being one God, three distinct persons, yet one God, because it matters. It's not just something that's good for a theology book or some seminary class or something that we say, I I can never understand that, so it doesn't matter. What Jesus says right here is it is the only thing that matters. He prays for his disciples that they would be kept in the Father's name, that they would be sanctified by truth, they would be protected from the evil one. And 
all of that is only possible by knowing who God is. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. Coming up on September 9th, we celebrate one year as a church family. And I know we were meeting in missional community groups for several years before that, but this is kind of like, you know, our organizational church Sunday morning, you know, Soma Northwest. This is our one-year anniversary. And man, we have so much to praise God for. Lives that have been changed, needs that have been met, a good reputation and a good name in our community. So many things that God has done in us and through us. But here's what I want to challenge you and I want to ask you as one of your pastors to do. Leading up to that anniversary, so that gives us about a month, I want you to commit every week to pray 